John chapter 3 is where we land this morning. And while you're turning there, I'll mention a couple of things. One is that last week, Nancy and I had the opportunity to visit with the Tonneses, who are living in a climate entirely unlike this one. Uh, where they are is cold and snowy, uh, but they love it. And more than that, they're looking forward to being back here uh, very soon. In fact, Eric will be in the pulpit on the 30th of this month. So they're well, they miss you, they're looking forward to returning, but they, they are pretty happy where they are. Um, and the second thing I want to mention is that a month from now, Grace will celebrate her 50th anniversary. And here's what's fascinating. On the day that we do that, which is January 13th, it will be 50 years to the day since the very first service was held at the old King's Retreat up on Whittier Boulevard, now the Slam Dunk Sports Bar. Uh, Thomas and I visited the Slam Dunk Sports Bar to see the, the venue of our, our first service. I, I don't know if we'll be doing anything to celebrate there, but... Um, it's open even today uh, for you. So uh, that's on the 13th, and then we have uh, a special evening planned on the 20th of January, but those are things uh, that that you'll hear more about in detail in in the coming weeks. Well, John chapter 3, and we'll be looking specifically this morning at verse number 16. When I was in high school, I took a speed reading course Uh, The details of which at this point in my life are a little fuzzy, but I do remember this. Um, It happened over a spring break. Uh, It happened in a little storefront reading clinic up on Whittier Boulevard, which was run by a Mrs. Dwyer. And my friends and I peddled our way to the course every morning, so it must have been before my 16th birthday. But I remember in that course uh, that we were introduced to a variety of techniques that were designed to increase the speed at which we read and the comprehension with which we read. So I recall Mrs. Dwyer uh, telling us not to read word by word, but at first phrase by phrase, and then in blocks, and then right down the center of the page. She said, if you really need to blaze through a book, just read the first and last sentence of each paragraph. If you need to super blaze through a book, just read the first sentence of every paragraph. But whatever you do, no matter what technique you apply upon opening a book, you always want to do this. You always want to read the introduction. Because she said, the introduction is where the author explains the purpose and the goal of the book. That's where it is. So just like modern books, there were introductions in ancient ones as well, even Bible books. But unlike modern books, where the introduction is usually at the front, uh, in a Bible book it can be almost anywhere. So in 1 Peter, the, the introduction, what the book is about, is all the way at the end. In fact, it's in the last paragraph. Uh, 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 The purpose for the book of 1 Timothy is found just north of smack dab in the middle, chapter 3, 
verses 14 and 15. And in the book out of which we're working this morning, the book of John, it's found in the second to last chapter, the last couple of verses. In fact, turn there. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And it's there that we read these words. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. So let's just stop right there and note that this is a book of signs performed by Jesus. It's not an exhaustive book of signs, it's a selective book of signs that are included in this volume. Continue reading. But but these signs are here, these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So this is a book of signs aimed at convincing the reader that Jesus is the Christ, the the Old Testament Messiah, the the promised snake crusher of Genesis 3.15. And not only is Jesus the Christ, but he's also the Son of God, who judges evil, Psalm chapter 2, who restores humanity, Luke 3, 38. And as you read this book and you take in these signs, you find that uh, 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 there are things that John wants you to believe, but there's also something that John wants you to give you something that he offers. Now, if I want you to believe something, then it's because I want something from you. So if I want you to believe in my product, if I want you to buy my stuff, it's because I want to acquire money. If I want you to believe in my platform, that is, if I want you to vote for me, it's because I want power. But God wants you to believe, not so that he can take from you, but rather so that he can give. He he wants to give you life. And he talks about that life all through the book. He refers to it in chapter 10, verse 10, as abundant life. He refers to it in chapter 1, verse 4, among many places, as as nutritious life. No, I'm sorry, luminous life, light-giving life. And in 635 and 48 is nutritious life, life that's like bread that feeds your soul. This God-given gift is one for which there's no expiration date, at least on this side of the grave. Uh, With the Lord, every day is Christmas Day. It's a gift that's always available. So throughout all 22 chapters of this book, it's the Lord's aim for the reader to come away believing in Jesus so that he can give him life, rich and abundant life. And that's certainly the case in our passage this morning. So flip back to chapter three and we'll look together just at verse number 16. where we read, for God so loved the world that he gave, ding, 
there's the giving part. He gave his only son that whoever believes, ding, there's the believing part, that whoever believes in him should not perish, that is, lose his life, but have, or rather be given, eternal life. What a gift. What a gift. And that's the gift at which we'll be looking this morning on this second Sunday of Advent 2018. But before we dive into this passage, I want you to notice that while this gift given by God comes to us unwrapped, it's the recipient, (laughs) you and I, who come wrapped up. We're the ones who are wrapped up. In fact, we see this throughout the book of John. In the next chapter, chapter four, God's gift of life is offered to someone who is wrapped up in the layers of a social outsider and religious ignorance. In chapter three, the the one at which we're looking this morning, uh, uh, life is offered to one who is wrapped up in the layers of a social insider and religious education. But in both cases, these layers have got to be unwrapped, have got to be stripped off for the gift to be received. So as we work our way through the verses leading up to this morning's passage, you need to ask yourself these questions. What are the layers in which I'm wrapped up? What are the layers that are prohibiting me from receiving God's free gift of life? Or at least inhibiting me from enjoying it in all of its fullness. And we'll do that by considering the story on which this famous text is founded, the story of the encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus. So let's begin at the beginning, which is a very good place to start. Verse number one where we're introduced to Nicodemus. We see there that he is a member of the Pharisees, which is the strictest Jewish sect. We also see there that he is a ruler of the Jews. That is, he's part of the 70-member council known as the Sanhedrin, which not only rules over all the Jews in Jerusalem, but all the Jews in the world. And further, Jesus refers to him in verse 10 as the teacher of Israel. Not a teacher of Israel, but the teacher of Israel, which may mean that he was, in fact, Jerusalem's greatest teacher. Now, the point in rehearsing all of these things is simply to say this. Nicodemus was nobody's fool. Religiously speaking, he was formally educated. He was professionally accomplished. He was highly revered. Or to put it simply, he was smart, devout, and admired. So wrapped up in the uh, riches of his resume, verse 2 reveals that Nicodemus visited Jesus at night. So I guess you could think of this passage as Nick at night, if you'd like to. Why did he come at night? Well, he could have come at night to accommodate Jesus' busy calendar. Um, you've got to understand, Jesus, in his day, was wildly popular. 
In fact, Mark tells us early in Jesus' ministry that he could no longer go into a city to hold meetings. He had to go out into the countryside because the crowds were so large. So he had a busy calendar. Uh, It could have been because Nicodemus was afraid. And while there's no indication here in the passage that he was, we learn in chapter 12 that while, quote, many, even of the authorities, believed in Jesus, for fear of the Pharisees, that is Nicodemus' own group, they didn't confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, that is excommunicated from their church. Uh, Chapter 12, verses 42 through 43. So for either of these reasons or both or some other reason we're not aware of, Nicodemus chose nighttime to visit Jesus, who was entirely unlike Nicodemus. Nicodemus was identified with a formal religious sect. Jesus was not. Uh, Nicodemus was identified with the ruling establishment. Jesus was not. Nicodemus was identified by Jesus as the teacher of Israel, while Nicodemus identified Jesus as a teacher sent from God. Verse number two. So Jesus is something entirely different from Nicodemus. A difference that's clearly seen from the outset of their conversation during which Jesus begins to unwrap the layers that kept Nicodemus from seeing, from believing, from embracing God's gift of life. And as he does, it's very interesting. Notice that Jesus does not appeal to Nicodemus the way we might. That is in a man-centered fashion, uh, according to Nicodemus' felt needs, according to the emotional state of Nicodemus. Rather, Jesus appealed to Nicodemus in a God-centered, even a Trinitarian fashion. Now, what do I mean by a Trinitarian fashion? Well, take a look at the passage out of which our uh, story comes. Verses three through nine. Jesus appealed to Nicodemus based on the work of God as spirit. In verses 10 through 15, based on the work of God as son. In verses 16 through 21, based on the work of God as father. So Jesus unwrapped the layers in which Nicodemus was bound by a robust appeal to the Bible. And and that's an example worth noting because in explaining God to others, it's most helpful to do so on his terms. Let him explain himself, and that by way of the scriptures, by way of the word. And that's why I'm a big fan, I think I brought one up here, of uh, that little tract here that we mention from time to time, Two Ways to Live. You can pick it up at the... A kiosk out in the lobby, and it's a gospel presentation in six steps that takes a person all the way through the Bible, from the beginning of the Bible in panel one all the way to the end of the Bible in panel two. That's, that's why we uh, like and promote two ways to live. So let, let's see how uh, Jesus appeals to Nicodemus according uh, to the Trinity. First, by way of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And we see there in verse number two, Nicodemus said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. 
Now, this statement revealed the serious depth of of, uh, Nicodemus' interest in Jesus, especially since six chapters later, in chapter nine, verse 33, a blind man who was healed by the Lord said the very same thing, that God was with Jesus and was punished for it by the group to which Nicodemus belonged. So Nicodemus is really hanging it out there to say uh, this thing of Jesus. So in verse three, uh, Jesus responds to Nicodemus with a serious statement of his own. We know this because he prefaced it by the words, truly, truly, which is a a grammatical, a a, a verbal entree uh, of a formal announcement or uh, the confirmation of something certain. Uh, In other words, what I'm going to say to you right now, you can take it to the bank. You, You can base your life on it. So Jesus says, truly, truly, bank on it. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, Nicodemus, you've you've seen signs of the kingdom. You've admitted to that. But you can neither really see the kingdom, there in verse number three, nor even enter the kingdom, we see that there in verse five, unless you're born again. Well, how did Nicodemus hear those words? Well, concerning the kingdom, he was no doubt put back on his heels because seeing and participating in God's kingdom, especially on the last day, was an aspiration, even an expectation of every Jew and most especially religious leaders. As for the need to be born again, well, Nicodemus was at a complete loss. I mean, consider his response here. How can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So he's at the very least confounded by Jesus' words. How is this supposed to happen? Explain it to me. Or he's offended by them. Give me a break. But what matters most is not how Nicodemus heard Jesus' words, but how Jesus intended his words to be heard. Because interestingly, they were not intended to be heard, you must be born again. But rather, according to the language in which they were written, you must be born from above. So the text is translated as Nicodemus heard it, born again, but it's meant to be understood as Jesus spoke it, which is born from above. What does Jesus mean by being born from above? Well, uh, he says there in verse six that it means to be a member of God's kingdom, one must be twice born. Born of the flesh, which occurs here below, and born of the spirit, which occurs from above. And to drive the drive his point home, Jesus speaks the words there in verse number eight, which Nicodemus should have immediately picked up on. I I mean, he's the Bible expert. He he should have heard them as an allusion to Ezekiel uh, chapters 36 and 37. 
In Ezekiel 37, dead bones are brought to life. While in Ezekiel 36, the source of that life is revealed to be the breath or the wind or the spirit of God himself. So in verse number eight, when Jesus says to Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. That should have caused the lights to go on for Nicodemus. But he's left flat-footed. For Nicodemus to participate in God's kingdom and obey his word required what only the spirit can bring, and that is a spiritual transformation, not a reformation, not a taking of what's there and rearranging it into some other form that's acceptable to God, but a transformation, making us into someone that we could not have otherwise become by way of God's alien righteousness. The life-giving wind or breath of God's spirit that leads to the transformation of the human heart, which was once dead, like a stone, but is brought to life like flesh. Deuteronomy 10.16 and Jeremiah 4.4. Now the moment of that transformation is invisible. You, You can't see it. But the evidence of that transformation is quite visible, like leaves which have no power in and of themselves moving in the wind. Saw this yesterday when I pulled into a parking lot and this... uh, a collection of late autumn leaves were lifted off the asphalt pavement in a swirl and just about surrounded my car. Leaves in and of themselves don't do that. (laughs) But when they're animated, when they're given life, when they're moved by the wind, they do. Three weeks ago, I was reminded of the invisible but powerful transformation of the spirit revealed in the life of a couple. Now, this is a couple whom I knew years ago, um, almost 40 years ago. And they've been divorced for decades. But they've recently been reconciled. And this is what happened. The husband who remarried and has been married for some time fell under conviction of his uh, gross infidelity all those years ago. The wife, who is still single, was convicted by her decades of entrenched bitterness toward her ex-husband. So they both fall under conviction. They they both end up uh, meeting. And with the Spirit's help, this man and woman confessed their sins to one another and they were reconciled. These sins in which they had been wrapped and prohibited from enjoying the fullness of God's gift. Well, the story doesn't end there. It continues. Here's where the invisible power of God's spirit was especially seen in these persons. The woman's heart was so completely broken by the humility of her husband and the poor health of his current wife 
that she not only befriended them, a gesture that, gesture that was reciprocated by, by the ex-husband and his wife, but she has financially supported them when their medical bills have become too great to pay. People don't do that. They don't. That kind of behavior is evidence of an invisible spirit that's active and working within and through the life of a believer. I don't have to look any farther than my own life to testify to the transforming power of God. Uh, My thinking, my speaking, my behaving were all radically transformed when the spirit, the, the sword of the spirit worked its way into my heart and cut away the layers that kept me, that inhibited me from receiving and enjoying the fullness of God's gift of life. Things to which I thought I would forever be enslaved. So Jesus says here to Nicodemus, listen, I I see the layers of hard-earned intelligence and piety and respect in which you've uh, been wrapped, but you know, buddy, the spirit needs to get in there. He he needs to, to cut away that stuff. He needs to loosen you up if you intend to truly believe in God and find your life in him. And to all of this, Nicodemus incredulously cries out, how can this be? And I I love Jesus' answer because notice that he doesn't answer Nicodemus by coddling him. He doesn't say, oh, whoa, 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 calm down now, calm down. Have a seat, buddy. Everything's gonna be okay. No, he doesn't coddle him. He confronts him. He even rebukes him. In fact, that is Jesus' M.O. from his earliest days to uh, the end of his life and beyond. I mean, from the very beginning when he answered his worried parents with a rebuke after they found him in the temple. Why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? And then at the very end of the story when he answered the distressed disciples uh, who were rebuked, Uh, because they thought his empty tomb meant that he had been stolen rather than resurrected. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You should have known these things. So don't be surprised that Jesus replied in verse number 10 to Nicodemus skeptical, how can these things be with a straightforward embracing Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? I mean, if you can't understand them, then who can? Jesus goes on, in concert with the prophets, I've told you and your people the truth and you don't receive it. That's basically verse 11. So if I've told you these things in human terms, which you should believe, that's what I've been doing, but you don't believe them, then how will you understand if I tell you heavenly things? That's verses 12 and 13. So, having appealed to Nicodemus according to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, uh, Jesus then appealed to him by way of the Son, the second person of the Holy Spirit, and further 
unwrap the layers between Nicodemus and true belief in God that leads to the great gift of abundant life in him. And the scripture by which Jesus commended Nicodemus to the son is found in Numbers 21. Now, you don't need to turn there. I'll just give you a summary of the story to which Jesus refers. Um, Israel, uh, as is their habit, has rebelled against God and Moses. And so God punishes Israel with the plague of poisonous snakes. Uh, This wakes Israel up to their sin. They confess it to God and Moses. Moses comes and intercedes uh, uh, before God on behalf of the people. And God instructs Moses to do this, to take a snake, not a real one, but a snake fashioned out of bronze. And he tells him to attach it to a pole and to lift it up so that all who had been bitten by a live snake and looked at the bronze snake would be healed and live. And so Jesus says to Nicodemus here in verse 14, read with me, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever looks up and believes in him like Israel believed in the bronze snake, may have eternal life. Not just life, but eternal life. It's a remarkable comparison, and I think that we often uh, miss it in this verse uh, as we're rushing on our way to verse 16. I mean, consider this. How did death infect Israel by way of a snake? How did death infect mankind? By way of a man. How is Israel saved from the death introduced by the snake? Well, by a snake. But not just any snake, a bronze snake. How would mankind be saved from the death introduced by man? By a man. But not just any man, a perfect man, the God-man. And so in this way, Uh, Jesus appeals further to Nicodemus. He's appealed to him according to the Son, first by the Spirit, and finally by way of the Father, the first person of the Trinity. And we see this in the uh, epic verse 16, which begins with these words. For God. For God. And after that, Jesus makes it clear to Nicodemus that everything else flows from him, from God. It's all from him. His love for the world, the gift of his son, the freedom from death, the gift of eternal life. It's all of him. It's none of us. And as Jesus peels back the layers of self between Nicodemus and the gift of life, I want you to notice two things. Two things that Nicodemus would have heard as Jesus spoke verse 16 to him. First, belief in the gift of God's Son was not a belief in, but a belief into. In fact, you could translate the verse, uh, whoever believes into him. So this was not a partial belief. This was a total belief. It was a belief that involved Nicodemus' brain as well as his behavior. God's gift of life comes to us now just as it did back then. It's not a private thing. It's not a partial thing. It's not a Sunday thing. 
It's not just a religious thing. It's not just a conversational thing. It is something into which a person entirely submerses him, his, or her self. It's like swimming. Uh, swimming doesn't occur on top of the water. People don't swim over the water. People swim through the water. They're submerged in the water. And that's life in God through Christ. It's a life into which we submerge ourselves. And the second thing that was apparent to Nicodemus was that eternal life was more than just living forever. It wasn't, it wasn't just uh, life year after year after year after year after year. How much longer is this life? Oh, that's right, it lasts forever. So hand me another harp and take me to another cloud. Let's try to fill up this time. Well, we're not in time anymore. So it, it was more than that because if it was just that, Jesus would have used a different word. But he used a term that meant so much more. You see, Jews thought of time as a succession of ages which culminate in a final age known as the one to come, the age to come. So while living forever and ever is characteristic of that final age, it's one not to be understood so much at the quantity of time, but rather the quality of the time, its richness, its fullness. Since the age to come was inaugurated by Christ himself at the first Christmas, the first Advent. So to have Christ for Nicodemus or for us is to really already be enjoying a taste of eternal life, the age to come, the fullness that will only become fuller and fuller and fuller as we move into eternity. Well, by way of John 3, God's free gift of life is before you. There it is, right there. It's unwrapped. It's waiting to be received. But like Nicodemus, it's impossible to attain it if you, if I, remain wrapped up. Wrapped up in yourself. Wrapped up in your accomplishments wrapped up in your aspirations, wrapped up in your ambitions, wrapped up in your religion, wrapped up in you fill in the blank. So to embrace God's gift, you've got to follow the path that Jesus laid out for Nicodemus, who by God the Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, was enabled to unwrap himself, free himself, unencumber himself so that he could receive the free gift of life by way of the Son. And it's a gift for which he suffered. Uh, we know that from chapter 7. We can assume that after reading chapter 19. And church tradition tells us that it only got rougher and rougher for Nicodemus who finally confessed Christ. But it was a gift that was abundant, that was luminous, that was nutritious, even in his extremity then, even now, as he continues living today, even throughout all time, as he lives forever and ever. What a gift. What a gift was given to him.
And what a gift can be ours if we accept it at this Christmas time. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that you would help us to receive this gift and rip away, like you did with Nicodemus, all the stuff in which he was wrapped. Uh, We're all wrapped in our own things. We're better acquainted with them than anybody else in this room. We, We know what's holding us back. So by the power of your spirit, the work of Christ and uh, the love of God. May we be free this morning to accept and enjoy your free gift of life. We thank you for that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.